David Sirota on his website, Too Much Information, like Michael Moore, is worried that Trump might actually win. Unlike the DNC insiders, Moore and Sirota very much want Donald Trump to be defeated. The DNC insiders don't carry their way. What we need to remember is that the DNC insiders and the RNC insiders are all playing for the same owners. It looks like two baseball teams, but it's really just one baseball team, and the only opponent is the fans. Be that as it may, David is trying to get us voters to jump on the bandwagon and put pressure on Biden and the DNC insiders so that they'll actually try to defeat Trump. Even though my goals and conclusions are different than David's, I still think that the information he presents here is worth knowing. I said yesterday that instead of putting pressure on DNC or RNC insiders, what we really need to do is put pressure on the oligarchs, to put pressure on the owners, to force them to give the people what they need. The oligarchs, the plutocrats, the owners own the politicians. So if they wanted to, they could make the politicians do the right thing. So this rah-rah tribalism of trying to get the Democrats to beat the Republicans or the other way around is probably wasted energy. The best thing we could probably do is vote for neither of them and put pressure on the oligarchs directly in the streets. However, if we do follow David's advice and we do put pressure on Biden and on the DNC insiders, I think good things could come of that. So here's David's article. You're not being loyal by staying silent as Biden depresses voters. As Biden has ignored the Democratic base, polls now show he faces an enthusiasm gap. Progressive pressure is needed to force him to energize Democratic voters and defeat Trump. And I would say that progressive pressure is needed to energize Democratic voters and Republican voters and independent voters and get us to put pressure where pressure is needed. The survey data are clear. One of the biggest threats to defeating Donald Trump in the upcoming election is a democratic enthusiasm gap. It exists in part because democratic voters spent the last 12 years voting for change, and now they are exhausted after they kept getting a status quo that gratuitously kicks the face of humanity. The enthusiasm gap also exists because Joe Biden has seemed more focused on trying to court Republicans in ways that can demotivate Democratic voters. The voters in Flint, Michigan are definitely demotivated. Progressive sounding alarms about these facts are periodically depicted as seditious Russian-backed assets nefariously trying to throw the election to Trump. But many of the lefty Jeremiads are more like the jeers I heard at Veterans Stadium as a childhood baseball fan. Back then, many Phillies fans booed my favorite player, Mike Schmidt, the greatest third baseman of all time. They booed him so incessantly that at one point he jokingly wore a wig on the field to try to hide his identity. It was heartbreaking to me as a kid but I came to understand the booze not so much coming from a place of nihilism, but instead coming more from a place of sadness. Philadelphia's notoriously unforgiving fans booed because they were bummed out by the Phillies' losses. They wanted Schmidt to do better and wanted the Phillies to win ballgames. It's the same thing for many progressives. Most of them criticize Biden not just because some of his policies are so wrong on the merits, but also because his wrongness is a clear and present danger to the effort to win the 2020 election. 
let me jump in here and say that he's right, that the fans want their team to win the election. But what we should really want is justice, economic justice and racial justice and ecological justice. Winning the election with Biden is not winning on any of those fronts. And while I'm here, even though I like David Sirota, it's probably fair to say about what I'm saying that I consider him to be a sheepdog. This partisan idea of my team winning kind of leaves the people who are desperate for economic relief out in the cold. And sheepdogs don't care about that. Sheepdogs think winning elections with their team is more important than taking care of working class Americans. If that's not being fair to David, then please let me know in the comments. And please tweet this to David and see if he agrees or disagrees. Back to the story. A comparison of Biden's positions and polling suggests that this danger is now very real even though the Democratic ticket still could win. Biden has continued to oppose Medicare for All even as polls show the health care crisis has made that proposal even more popular. Biden has used the wildfire season to declare that he won't ban fracking, a move portrayed in the media as a way to court Pennsylvania voters even though a new poll shows a majority of voters there oppose fracking. Biden engineered a Democratic convention promoting GOP politicians as a way to try to make this the year of the Biden Republican, as Rahm Emanuel put it. And yet a recent CBS slash YouGov poll shows Biden is earning the support of just 5% of Republican voters and trailing Trump among independent swing voters. The Biden-Sanders task forces which are a joke, just saying, produced some solid progressive economic policy recommendations, but Biden hasn't campaigned on those proposals. Wow, that's a big surprise. Instead, his campaign publicly downplayed the recommendations while Biden has continued to periodically echo his infamous nothing would fundamentally change theme by telling donors he may not actually push those policies. Now, one poll shows him underperforming among some Latino voters, and another poll shows just 9% of his own voters say they are supporting him because of his position on issues. A terrifying enthusiasm gap. Taken together, all of this has helped create the warning lights now flashing in the latest polls. Biden is still ahead overall, but his margin is smaller than it appears, and the race in key battleground states remains tight, even as the Trump economy craters and the Trump-intensified pandemic persists. Meanwhile, there appears to be a significant enthusiasm gap between both candidates' voters. Polls from CBS and the Associated Press over the summer found that Trump's voting base is more enthusiastic about the election than Biden's base. Now comes the latest Fox News poll which, despite the sponsoring media outlet, is widely considered a credible, high-quality survey. In that survey, Biden still leads the race, but 59% of Trump voters say they are enthusiastic for their candidate to win, while only 43% of Biden voters say the same about their candidate. Here's the really scary part. This is me. The truly scary part is if you're stupid enough to think that either Biden or Trump would do anything to help the working class. But David says, this is the really scary part. 
At this time, during the 2016 election cycle, this same poll showed Clinton was actually leading Trump in those same enthusiasm metrics by a gap of 44% to 35%. I guess what David's trying to do is scare the comfy Democrats into pretending to care about poor people and people of color. Comfy Democrats have never really done more than pay lip service. That's why we have Biden now. But back to David. In other words, in terms of voter enthusiasm, Biden is far behind where even Clinton was. Now, sure, that may reflect the fact that Trump's overall potential voting base is smaller than it was in 2016, and thus his total universe of voters is now only the hardest of hardcore, but it is still terrifying, especially when you zoom in from the macro data as the New York Times recently did. In its story about the swing state of Wisconsin, the paper of record reported that African-American voters in Kenosha, where a police officer repeatedly shot Jacob Blake in the back at point-blank range, had grown dispirited and cynical about the political system. Dispirited and cynical. Imagine that. Let's say I did go out and vote and I voted for Biden, a friend of Blake's told the Times. That's not going to change police brutality. It's not going to change the way the police treat African-Americans compared to Caucasians. When Trump responded to the violence and protests with messages designed to fearmonger suburban voters with law and order messages, Biden validated the framing. Two days before the Times story, Biden's campaign released a 60-second television ad condemning riots. I want to make it absolutely clear. Rioting is not protesting, looting is not protesting, Biden says at the beginning of the ad, which ran nationally. It's lawlessness, plain and simple, and those who do it should be prosecuted. While the ad calls out Trump for fomenting violence, the goal is clear. Try to motivate a few Republican swing voters rather than energizing the much larger Democratic base. To be sure, enthusiasm may not determine the election outcomes, an excited voter's ballot is no less powerful than a depressed voter's ballot, and as long as both ballots are turned in, then enthusiasm levels don't matter. But enthusiasm tends to relate to turnout, and it could particularly determine turnout at a moment when some Americans will be required to be so psyched about the election that they are willing to venture out during a pandemic to cast their vote. In that situation, enthusiasm probably matters a lot which means an enthusiasm gap could be a big problem. The answer is not vote shaming. Some seem to think the way to solve this potential political emergency and prevent another 2016 is to engage in vote shaming. There was actor Bradley Whitford, who played Josh Lyman in the liberal brain-rotting fantasy show The West Wing, taking to Twitter to declare the planet and the most vulnerable among us don't have the luxury of theoretical purity. Here's another privileged asshole talking about theoretical purity. Who's fooled by that argument? Raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand. I want to see. You are a dumbass. The Washington Post's Jonathan Capehart similarly wrote, I'm so tired of those holier-than-thou progressives who continue to demand purity in the face of an existential threat like Trump. The pod save bros are concerned about potential Green Party voters, and even some environmentalists are hectoring young people with demands that they avoid trying to make a purity statement with a third-party vote, as if their dissatisfaction is performative rather than authentic. 
I have to say that I think David is in a better place than Nick Brana because Nick Brana and the Movement for a People's Party have been shaming Green Party voters. At least David's not doing that. David says, Tactically, this kind of vote shaming never works. It just pisses people off and further alienates them because the arguments are so dishonest. Voters aren't unreasonable purists because they are unhappy that Democrats don't seem to be offering policies that will prevent communities from being incinerated in climate-intensified wildfires. They aren't holier than thou by expressing dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party still propping up a for-profit healthcare system that threatens to quickly bankrupt people when they need medical care. At a moment of such pain and suffering, attempting to guilt, insult, and bully voters into supporting the Democratic cause is moronic and ineffective. And worse, it is ignorant of millions of Americans' lived reality over the last 12 years. The Democratic electorate has voted over and over and over again for change, and their party's leaders have returned the favor with bank bailouts, record oil exports during a climate emergency, an abandonment of the labor movement, corporate-written trade policies that crush workers, and healthcare reform that props up insurance profits. Who could experience the real-world consequences of that and not feel a wee bit frustrated? Now, I want to remind you, dear viewers and listeners, that yesterday we debunked the idea that Trump is more dangerous than Biden, especially when it comes to foreign policy, which we're going to cover in a minute. But this is what David says. Yes, wanting voters to throw Trump out of office is totally understandable. He is far more dangerous than Biden. He must be defeated. And there are plenty of constructive ways to make the case that voters should back the Democratic ticket, which I've said before is what I'll be doing. So that's where you can make the case that David is a sheepdog. But vote shaming isn't one of them. If you want to make the case that David isn't a sheepdog, his lack of harsh words for the Green Party compared to, say, the Movement for a People's Party is one such point of evidence. Indeed, throwing shade at voters for feeling burnt out and unenthused is the modern-day let-them-eat-cake, and the impulse to engage in as self-destructive a tactic as vote-shaming evinces the dangerous ideology at work here. Follow the donors. You'll notice that Democratic vote shamers rarely complain the other way. Typically, they lament progressive pressure, but don't lament big donors constantly demanding ideological fealty to an incrementalist corporate agenda that makes sure nothing fundamentally changes, which inevitably leads to voter disillusionment. They celebrate efforts to policy pander to affluent conservatives, but scoff at the notion of having to do any work to secure support from disaffected lower-income Americans who might consider sitting the election out or voting third party because they are so completely disgusted with both parties. Ding, ding, ding. In this worldview, Democrats promising tax breaks to wealthy suburbanites is seen as laudable pragmatism and shrewd politics to attract affluent Republicans. By contrast, the idea of having to promise a Green New Deal to young people who see a lifetime of climate dystopia and think about voting third party, that's seen as uncouth behavior and detestable pandering to petulant serfs who supposedly don't deserve even minimal respect or attention. The political class tells us to pay them no mind. They are the electoral arenas, no real person involved. So this is where David's logic totally breaks down. 
How are the serfs supposed to get the attention of the political class or the attention of the oligarchs if they don't have any money or power? The only power that the working class can wield is through massive general strikes, wildcat strikes, and through protests. The serfs will never have any power other than pitchforks and guillotines. All of these arguments that David is bringing forward assume that we can solve things by voting. Voting doesn't do shit. Money talks and riots talk. I'm gonna leave David here because I keep getting tired of people who still think that we can solve this by voting or pretend in the sheepdog's case that we can solve this by voting. The sheepdog wants us all to stay together in our pen so that the political class can continue to rip us off. I'm seeing some evidence of that here, I have to say. Caitlin Johnstone seems to have a much more realistic view than David Sirota about what is actually happening in the world. What would be sad is if David knew better, but he's still trying to shepherd us. I'm not assuming that at the moment because I've followed David Sirota for a long time and think he has a good head on his shoulders, but you have to be wary of people who are telling us to vote for Biden, or in David's case, that he's voting for Biden, or in Cornell West's case, for that matter, they're telling us that they're voting for Biden and they'll leave the decision for how we vote to us. Frankly, I think that's bullshit. So here's Kate keeping it real. Let's be real. President Biden would probably be more hawkish than Trump. People who dislike Trump are often reluctant to talk about this, but it looks likely that a Biden administration would be more warlike than its predecessor. In a recent interview with U.S. Department of Defense newspaper Stars and Stripes, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said it's important to keep troops in the Middle East to fight terrorism and that it's likely that America's bloated military budget will not only remain at its current size but may actually increase under his presidency due to the need to focus on near-peer threats like China and Russia. This is not a deviation in messaging from Biden and his crack team of beltway string pullers, but a continuation of already established patterns. His campaign has been consistently out-hawking Trump on foreign policy by attacking him for insufficient aggression towards Venezuela, China, North Korea, Syria, Cuba, and of course Russia, as well as criticizing Trump for not acting like a wartime president. In a tweet by antiwar.com, Biden says, stay in Mideast, increase military spending. Biden wants refocus on fighting Russia. In a July interview with Biden foreign policy advisor, Anthony Blinken, the Wall Street Journal's Walter Russell Mead was told of the campaign's plan to tame China, Russia, and woke Democrats using Cold War era democratic policy, including a liberal multilateralism supplemented when absolutely necessary by the American military and a willingness to use it. A Biden administration won't be looking for a reset, a grand bargain, or anything more than a business-like relationship with Vladimir Putin, Mead wrote after the interview. Democrats haven't been this hawkish on Russia since the Kennedy administration. This is still Mead writing. While China's rise and Russia's turn to the dark side complicate foreign policy, the ideas and institutions of the liberal internationalist order are failing not because the world is fundamentally changing, but because the global liberal system has been starved of a critical ingredient in the Trump years, American support, Mead writes. 
Again, these are the positions that Biden Incorporated is campaigning on. Because war is a horrific evil which people naturally abhor, U.S. presidents reliably campaign as doves and govern as hawks. Trump did it, Obama did it, even Bush did it. Biden has paid occasional lip service to the need to end the forever wars, including in the aforementioned Stars and Stripes interview, but overall he's been campaigning for his first term far closer to the militaristic end of the spectrum than any president in recent memory. This to me spells trouble, and I'm not the only one. In a Jacobin article titled, Expect More Military Liberal Interventionism Under a Joe Biden Presidency, Derek Davidson and Alex Thurston write that, the liberal establishment is desperate to return a centrist to the White House in November and reestablish the country's more stable military dominance of the world order, disrupted only briefly by Donald Trump. Joe Biden's terrible track record on foreign policy, including his championing of war in Iraq, suggests a return to Obama-style strong military interventions abroad. In a Japan Times article titled, On Foreign Policy, Biden is Worse Than Trump, Ted Rall contrasts Trump's relatively dovish campaign trail promises to stop racing to topple foreign regimes that we know nothing about, that we shouldn't be involved with, against Biden's consistent attempts to out-hawk the sitting president, noting Biden's horrible track record on Iraq, Afghanistan, Serbia, and all Obama's wars. But overall, Biden's extensively documented love of war isn't something people generally want to think about if they despise the current president. Indeed, Trump has been a horrible warmonger in his own right, and it's hard to imagine how Biden couldn't be at least a slight improvement in some tense areas like Iran and Yemen, to say nothing of his spectacular face plants and authoritarian abuses at home. Still, it's hard to look at all the saber-rattling Biden and his team of ventriloquists have been doing on the campaign trail without getting the distinct impression that some major international escalations are being planned. I don't point this out to tell Americans to vote for Trump in November. Trump is a ghoul and I'm not going to tell people not to do what they think they need to do in response to his presence. Indeed, if wars are planned, it seems entirely likely that they will happen regardless of what oligarchic puppet happens to be sitting in the Oval Office after January 20th, just like the escalations that were scheduled to begin against Russia under Hillary Clinton ended up getting rolled out anyway under Trump despite his vocal opposition to them. The war pigs are doubtless planning for any contingency, and it's very possible they can get around any inertia Trump's befuddled orneriness might throw in their way. I mainly point this out to say that wars are planned, and we should plan accordingly. The fact that there's a nominee spouting hawkish vitriol for one of America's two oligarchic parties is more a symptom of these pre-existing oligarchic agendas than an organically arising phenomenon, so those who love peace and oppose warmongering and world-threatening nuclear escalations should be ready to stand against something very ugly in the near future. In an even remotely sane world, war would be something everyone avoids with all their might and uses only as a very last resort. In a world that is dominated by an empire driven by the agenda of unipolar hegemony, Wars are sought and planned for as an end in themselves, and excuses are invented to get into them.
War is the single most crazy and self-destructive behavior our species engages in, and the presence of Armageddon weapons makes it infinitely more so. Our survival depends on peace finding some way to get a word in edgewise before it's too late.